This year is part nine of a ten-part series describing the Makos in Mitzrayim. The ninth Mako is Choshech. Um, Choshech doesn't require as much elaboration. The obvious debilitation of the Egyptians, shutting down Egyptian society. What's strange, if you look at the Psukim, is of course the lack of any warning, the lack of any run-up, in which HaKadosh Baruch Hu even designates his plans to Moshe, tells him what he will, uh, what he will implement and, and what will happen. The entire Makkah of Choshech takes three Psukim. Three Psukim is extremely, extremely limited, even compared to the shortened Makos of Vaira, certainly compared to the lengthy Makos of Bo, on the one hand, Arbe, 20 Psukim, of course, Makas Bukharos is tethered to the night of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, so it's obviously going to be many, many more Psukim. Three Psukim, the first Pasek HaKadosh Baruch Hu instructs Moshe to stretch his hand upon the heavens and, uh, and elicit Choshech. Second Pasek, Moshe actually elicits the Choshech, three days of Choshech. And then one Pasek, a short description about how people couldn't see each other stand up while the Jews were radiant in light. So talk about the brevity of Choshech in a moment. But you could probably divide Choshech into three different, um, three different cross-sections. Number one, the theological component of Choshech. Establishing, reinforcing Kodesh Baruch Hu as the creator of the world, as the God of nature. Something which hadn't been as evident in the previous Makos. The previous Makos were inversions of nature, re- Rechanneling nature's forces, water to blood, Nile to to crocodiles, but now Gurdish Baruch Hu was creating ex nihilo, as I discussed in Arvis, something that seemed to come from nowhere. In the case of Barad, combining fire and water, two of the most different elements, foundations to the natural universe, but different elements which generally can't coexist. Gurdish Baruch Hu here reverses the he or the installation of light and, and planets of Sefer Bereshus, and it establishes a Kodesh Baruch Hu not just as the God of terrestrial nature, but of the God of universal nature, of cosmos, of planets. In addition, it doesn't just um, establish a Kodesh Baruch Hu as the creator and the God of nature. Very interesting Pasuk in Tehillim, Per Kufhei. Shalach Choshech Vayachshich, a Kodesh Baruch Hu dispatched the Choshech to create darkness, We'll talk about that dual language in a moment. Kodesh Baruch Hu dispatched the Choshech, Velo Maru Es Devaro, and they didn't rebel against the Kodesh Baruch Hu's instructions, and here the they refers to the planets, to the sun, to light, to darkness. In the very beginning of creation, a Kodesh Baruch Hu created divisions between day and night, light and darkness, and the two don't, obviously, when there's light, there isn't darkness, and darkness, there's no light. Now Kodesh Baruch Hu reconstituted, recalibrated that whole process, it was also a very, very specific rejection of the Egyptian worship of sun god, of Osiris and Ra. Um, to It wasn't just an eclipse. The sun te- disappeared temporarily. But it seems as if a very thick smog descended, obliterating any impact of the sun. In fact, according to many interpretations, Choshech actually began during daybreak. Very interesting phrase in the first passage, V'yamesh Choshech. What does it mean, V'yamesh Choshech? Some people feel V'yamesh Choshech means that the Choshech was palpable. V'yamesh means they could touch it, they could sense it, they could actually uh, feel it. 
But some interpret v'yamesh choshech that from the word loyamish that once the night was removed, then choshech began. V'yamesh choshech. Once the night was yamish was removed, then choshech began. So it was intentional. It was ironic. It was targeted that choshech should begin just as the sun was rising. It was an attack on the sun, just as it was an affirmation of a Baruch Hu's authority in the heavens, not just on the earth below. And in this respect, there's a, a relationship, a correspondence between Choshech and Barad, between Choshech and Arbe. Um, they're all combining forces of nature which don't normally coexist, water and ice, and water and fire. Arbe created at least what appeared to be a creation, Yeshmi Ayin, something which wasn't indigenous being called from the Nile, but something that just came upon them suddenly. The second element of Choshech, and this is actually described in the Pesukim as follows. Three days, they couldn't see each other. They couldn't stand up. But it wasn't just they couldn't see each other, they couldn't stand up. Chazal fill in the blanks. Everyone had candles. Evidently, the candles didn't work. Um, there was, either there was, there was no oxygen, the oxygen had been sucked out of the air, or there was some other element, some other gaseous material that had descended upon Egypt. But this wasn't just an absence. This was something palpable and handicapping and debilitating beyond just eliminating sunlight. The phrase V'yamesh Choshech, as I pointed out before, the palpability of the Choshech. Or the phrase Choshech Afela Bechol Eretz Mitzrayim Shalosh Yamim. The fact that people couldn't get up or talk to each other or see each other. Even in darkness you can make out with other senses, you can make out people's presence. According to Chazal, this was a complete shutdown of all sensory interaction. There was no communication, there was no eating, no hearing, no feeling. In fact, there's an interesting Evan Ezra, who describes a very, very black, foggy uh, situation that sometimes occurred in the Yamokinos, I guess in the Atlantic Ocean, I guess he's referring to. And he says he's been there many times and it gets so dark and so materially dark that simply everything is shut down. You can't hear, you can't see, you can't speak. Um, here it wasn't just sensory, they couldn't eat anything. Essentially the Egyptians became handicapped, as we would say in our jargon, they became vegetables. They sat in a chair, didn't eat, didn't drink, didn't see, didn't feel. This is the ultimate, ultimate handicapping or debilitation of human being. We'll talk about death and, and the broader ramifications of killing the firstborn. But even if the Makos had ended in Choshech, they're literally at the brink of death. The difference between the Egyptians during Choshech and dead men was not that great. They sat there like a vegetable, like a tree, breathing barely, not speaking, not feeling, not sensing. So it wasn't an attack on the Egyptian society, as I mentioned in the middle Makos of Arov, Dever, and Shrin. This was simply taking away life, bare, or except the rare, or the bare, bare minimum of living and breathing. That phrase that I mentioned before in Tehillim Perakofei, Shalach Choshech Vayachshich. Again, that dual language of Choshech Afela, Shalach Choshech Vayachshich. You can imagine how psychologically scarred they were afterwards, every time it him nightfall came. Um, you can imagine the Egyptians feared the worst. So, he, so it's interesting to imagine the, the anxiety that the Egyptians faced afterwards. I mentioned that after the Shrin, 
I can't imagine the Egyptians used the furnaces too often because those, those, uh, the soot and the dust is what caused the shrin. So there's also an after effect and an after impact to these makos. And what's interesting about the debilitation or the literally handicapping of the Egyptians, as I mentioned before, it happens so quickly and the rapidity by which it happens is reflected by the brevity of the psukim. There's only three psukim because it just happens so quickly. And again, according to the simple reading of the psukim, it happened for three days, which seemed to be a lot less than the other makos, because I'll tell us that the average makos lasted a week, some say a month, and Chazal themselves elaborate Choshech that it really was six days, three days in which they couldn't see each other, then three days of intensified darkness in which they couldn't even uh, get up or sit down. But the simple reading of the text is just it happens quickly, there's no there's no um, warning, there's no lead-up, there's no... Moshe Rabbeinu extends the staff and, and immediately it's darkness and and there's this rapidity, this acceleration with which people uh, are afflicted. It highlights many things. It highlights the frailty of man. Very often, when people suffer, so so if there's a if there's a warning, if people are sick for a while, and you're able to absorb what's happening and, and make sense of it, so to speak, and internalize it, and I don't say move on. You don't want to move on from people suffering, but at least. Get get uh, get your balance, get your equilibrium here. The the the, the shift, the transition from prideful, boastful, um, exploitation, exploitative Egyptians to just simply vegetables, as we would say, lying in a hospital bed with the tubes attached. That's basically how I would define choshech. On lung machines, on heart machines, basically just uh, breathing, the heart beating, that any any excess, any additional human basic interaction, mobility, speech, eating, happens so quick. Uh, it broke their routine. There's a routine that set in, in in these makos where the warnings came. We all know that when we sin, for, say, on our own level, hopefully we don't exploit others like Pyro did, but when we fail and when we sin, so we have a routine. We, we know things are wrong, we know things are inappropriate, but we sometimes find ourselves falling into those situations and then we, we're shamed and we're embarrassed and then we recover. And so much of tshuva is breaking the routine. It's just not following the same routine of falling and recovering and promising and falling again. And human beings live very comfortably in their routines. And Baruch is trying to break Pyro's routine to give him Give him a, one last shot of tshuva, because he's already hardened his heart. He's already hardened himself against critique and input and, and chastisement. But perhaps if there are these quick shocks, these quick electric pulses, these quick arbez, these very, very quick choshechs that you're not prepared for, that you can't anticipate, that you can't, uh, you know, if, if someone's going to afflict you and you're prepared for it, it's a whole different story you're able to to, to uh, flex your, your, yourself and, and prepare yourself for what's going to occur. So this is trying to break Pyro's routine. To a degree, it does succeed because Pyro is willing to discharge the Jewish people. He's willing to liberate the Jewish people. Um, he's not willing to, to release the cattle, and, and this is really the last stage. He's willing to let the men, women, and children depart at the cattle. Zemakas so Bacharis is the final, final salvo, the final straw that breaks Pyro's back. Um, obviously, the rapidity of Choshech also reflects 
the encroaching Geula. And I'll talk about the message of Choshech Ram Yisrael in a moment, but as history comes to its conclusions, to its endpoints, to its redemptive turnarounds, so history accelerates because it has to account for itself. So when we say HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Chishay Vesakates, 400 years had to be collapsed into 210 years, so they had to move more quickly. As we reach the end of our own historical challenge, we sense that history is accelerating. We're going to say, on Pesach, Bechol, Dor, Vedor, and every generation, new foes arise to challenge the survival of the Jewish people, and of course, each one of them fails. It used to be a door was 30 years, 40 years, and you know, we, we, we met different Doros, and different people challenged us, and and then there was a respite and a recess, and 30, 40 years later, Hitler arose. And, and now, as, as as history reaches its conclusive end points, the final phases of history, it's every five years. There's a Saddam Hussein, and then there's a, then there's a Syria, and then there's a Ahmadinejad, and just it's impossible to keep up with the flurry of foes and the Arafats and the Hamases, and just it's like a constant pageant of people because history is reaching its end point and fitting everything in. It's like cramming for a test to fit everything in. So there's a rapidity of choshech, which adds to the debilitating sense that man goes from, chas you knew you'd be paralyzed, you knew you'd be going through a procedure, um, so, and then you came out of the procedure, you didn't have any sensory functions, you'd at least know where you are, but imagine if you just wake up, it was a terrible, terrible story during the intifada of a soldier who was caught in a bombing, and he lost his hearing and his eyesight. He woke up in this world of darkness and this world of lack of any communication of any way, shape, or form. And every time the nurses tried to administer medicines, they would just flay his arms and scream and felt like people were attacking him. He just didn't know where he was, what he was, and how could you communicate with someone that can't hear and can't see. And finally they brought his father. And somehow his father sat by his bedside and rubbed his cheek and he was able to recognize his father's touch. Uh, his unique father's touch, and then slowly, I think he put they put in cochlear implants or optical implants, and was able to communicate it at least at a bare minimum. But they just just weren't prepared for it, and to go from living to basically not not participating in life beyond just breathing and, and having your heart pump um, was a was a scarring and traumatic experience. The final element, again, the first one being theological, Gersh Baruch Hu as the creator of heavens and planets, and of course debunking Osiris and Ra. Um, number two, the personal attack upon the Egyptians. Number three, I'd call it moral. Um, it's very interesting because in our minds, light and darkness, light and darkness are not moral issues. There's nothing immoral about the night, there's nothing moral about the day. It's just different phases of, of, of the daily cycle, the, Earth, the Earth's revolution uh, on its axis and how it faces the sun. But in our jargon, light is associated with good, with virtue, with piety, with kindness, and dark is associated with evil, with rebellion, with wicked, with the dark side, the light forces. These are all phrases that run, you know, we're very conversant with and in. In many respects, in many respects, that all began the night of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Remember, the world began as darkness, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu introduced light, and separated light and darkness, and there seems to be nothing moral, there's no distinction between light and darkness. And planets create light, and when the planets aren't creating light, then darkness uh, exists. And interestingly enough, the two major apocalyptic 
destructions of man, which had occurred in Sefer Bereshus, until this point, the, the precedent for divine justice, for divine vengeance, the Mabul and the destruction of Stom didn't really occur at night. The Mabul began by Hibetzim Hayom Hazeh. And the destruction of Stom, if you read it carefully, Lot arrives at night, and some of the fracas between, uh, excuse me, the Malachim arrive at night, and the fracas between Lot and the locals it takes place during the night. But essentially, as the day breaks, they're spirited away, Lot and his entourage, and then Stom is destroyed. And there's really no, no indication that part of the punishment is to impose this darkness, that darkness descends. And this is really the first time that darkness is associated with punishing the wicked people and shrouding them in darkness, covering them in Choshech, in which evil itself is associated with darkness. The Egyptians were shrouded or were immersed in darkness, and the Jewish people, Interesting, it doesn't, doesn't really say that the darkness didn't afflict them, as it says by the other Makos. They just had almost naturally this light that was associated with their virtue, with their with their own, uh, with their own station, with their own behavior, and it's something which is obvious to us, but it's becoming obvious, or it's becoming established in the human mind, in part because of what happens in in Magas Bacharos, that the Egyptians, the evil taskmasters, the enslavers, the manipulators, the persecutors, become covered in darkness, and this becomes a metaphor for how Hakadosh Baruch Hu punishes wicked people. And after, the, from this point onwards, punishments start at night. Sancherev's army is eliminated at night. Haman's downfall begins at night. And Chazal are very sensitive to this. Leosid Lavo, a parak, let's say, in Yeshaya, Kumi Ori Kivarech. This is parak Samach, and it's, it's really um, the parak which serves as the basis for that section in Lechadodi. Yisari, Yisari, Kivarech, Kumi Ori Kivarech, Echvod Hashem Alayich Zarach. Darkness, apocalyptic darkness, will descend upon the earth of Arafel, the Umim, and fog will cover all the nations. And upon you, Hashem's glory will shine. And many other psukim in Tanakh describing the, the darkness that covers the Rishayim and the light of HaKadosh Baruch the Ar Hashem. Or Yushalayim, or Hashem, which illuminates for the righteous people. And again, it may seem obvious, it may seem cliched, but this is really where it begins. And it's not just apocalyptic that we can trace it through history, that evil people are punished at night, but it's also existential that we associate religious observance, religious adherence, and religious success with light and with day, and religious failure and betrayal and rebellion and disobedience with night, that that's not something that is built in to human experience. Uh, There's nothing, no difference between day and night, and in fact, in theory, religion could be associated with darkness, because that's when man is at his most victimized, at his most vulnerable, and he feels victimized by the lack of sight, and the lack of visibility, and suddenly before electricity, the lack of of meaningful experience, and and that's when, when religion, or that's the association of religion, or Sometimes paganism is associated with magic and dark forces, forces beyond human comprehension. And, and there's a rerouting of religious identity and religious attitude. The person wakes up in the morning refreshed, energized, sees, has visibility, can employ logic and ration and reason, and, 
And that becomes a metaphor for religion. And religion is meant to be empowering to the human experience. It's meant to create a day-like experience. Religion is not meant to reject the human character, but it's meant to enhance it. And when a person succeeds religiously, it's the day of his soul. His experience is day-like, is, is light, is, is illuminated, is energized, is healthy, is ration-based. And rather than casting religion as something dark and, and based on human vulnerability and some other system of magic that steps in to, to support a world in which ration and, and human effort is, is inept. So these are the three, the three messages of Choshech. Obviously, there's this theological moment, planetary interaction, reversing the divisions of creating the world, uh, debunking some of the Egyptian paganism. Obviously, there is a debilitating effect upon the Egyptian, but far beyond just a blackout or darkout or when the lights go out. But it's something which rejects or or, um, reduces, I think, the Egyptians to bare, bare sustenance. And then there's a metaphoric, apocalyptic moment where, for the first time, and forevermore, darkness becomes associated with how Kodesh Baruch Hu punishes. For example, very famous, famous uh, Pasuk, V'choshach HaPnei Sahom. The darkness was upon the abyss in the beginning of the, before the world was created, Chazalzi, this is a metaphor for Gehenim, which is enshrouded in darkness. This is really the, the first time that this all begins.